You are listening to the teaching podcast of the Crossridge Women Study of Mark from winter 2021. Welcome, friends. We are back with study four in the Gospel of Mark. And what a full two weeks of study this has been. So far in the book, we've seen evidence of compassion and authority and power over evil, nature, sickness, and death. And now in chapters six and seven, Mark tells us the most jaw-dropping thing yet. In spite of all the wonder, miracles, power, etc., people will still reject this king. And not only that, they will also reject his servants. I think rejection is the theme that unites these chapters, and we're going to jump into them now. We won't be able to cover it all, but let's walk through the stories Mark records here and take a closer look at this theme in light of his purpose in writing. So starting in chapter 6, we see that Jesus comes to his hometown, and he starts to teach in the synagogue. While the Gospels tell us that Jesus' home base during his ministry years was Capernaum, here we can assume he was in Nazareth, the place he grew up where his family lived. So he's teaching in this synagogue where he likely went as a boy, and the people are reacting like many others already have who hear Jesus teach. They are astonished. But instead of drawing close and in faith asking, what does this all mean? They ask some other questions. Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom that has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? You see, they know him. Or so they think. He grew up there. He's just that little kid that ran around the synagogue after morning prayers wrestling with his siblings, right? They don't have eyes to see beyond the physical reality that has become so familiar to them. And rather than be amazed at his authority and wisdom and power, they are offended by it. And it's Jesus who's amazed, amazed at their unbelief. They don't have faith to lean in or draw close or ask the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Because they think they already know. The sad reality is that while Jesus still goes around healing a few sick people, Mark suggests that unbelief prevents the real miracle from taking place here. The miracle of faith that gives eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But this rejection doesn't stop Jesus' mission from going forward. We see that he sends out the twelve. He calls them to live a life of faith and to depend on him rather than anything else they might bring along or contribute to the mission. He's going to work through them to carry the same message forward he has been declaring from the beginning, that all people should repent. And the truth is, they will be rejected in the same way he has been. Rejected king, rejected servants. It's expected, but that doesn't stop the mission from going forward. This little story is part of an interleave or a sandwich that Mark creates here. You probably observed that. The apostles end up coming back to Jesus after a time in verse 30 and reporting to him all they had done and taught. So we can see this and know that this story of the disciples' mission should help us to interpret the events that Mark puts in the middle of the sandwich. And that's the story of King Herod and the death of John the Baptist. Now, if you picked up the book of Mark in verse 14 there, you you might think it odd that Mark deposited this story right here, sort of in the middle. But seeing it in the context of the apostles' mission helps us frame it right away inside this theme of rejected king, rejected servants. 
A few things about this story we should point out. First, the irony of Mark's first words might be lost on us, but not to the original reader. It says, King Herod heard about it. Truth is, Herod was no king. His official title was Tetrarch. He reported to the Roman emperor and was little more than a figurehead put in place to keep the peace between the Jews and the Roman government that actually ruled over them. So Mark shows us this human king in contrast to the Messiah, the true king that has come to the people of Israel. Herod doesn't actually have true authority, although he pretends to. He is weak and he makes decisions based on a fear of man, in particular his wife. And speaking of his wife, he has done evil according to the law. He has taken his own brother's wife and she is very offended when John the Baptist calls them to repent of this sin against God. Herod's immorality is flaunted on the occasion of his birthday when he gives this banquet to the important people of Galilee. His daughter dances, likely in a promiscuous way, and he ends up swearing a ridiculous oath, seeing as he doesn't even technically have half a kingdom to give away. And all this leads to the death of John. Against King Herod's better judgment, even. Mark says he enjoyed listening to John. He feared him and recognized him as a righteous and holy man. But as we've already seen in the case of Jesus' hometown, just recognizing someone doesn't always equate with believing in them or submitting oneself to them. Just because you recognize doesn't mean you repent. So the servant of the Messiah is beheaded, the forerunner to Jesus, a servant who plays a pretty important role in the mission, and yet even John the Baptist is not immune to suffering and death in the name of Jesus. The messenger is rejected because the message exposes sin. And repentance usually costs one's comfort and control, and that is not a price Herod is willing to pay. The last verse of the story is a somber look ahead to what will come, not only for Jesus, but for many of his followers as well. As John's disciples remove his body and place it in a tomb. Rejected king, rejected servants. And yet the mission goes forward even without JTB. The twelve now are carrying on and so many people are being drawn to the message and the person of Jesus that the disciples need a break from ministry. They're tired and they're worn out and actually they are hungry. That's a small detail right at the beginning that we might overlook, but I think it's super important to the story. So Jesus tells them to come away to a remote place, a desolate place, also translated the wilderness to get some rest. But they can't because the people follow them. Imagine the exhaustion and the frustration of the 12 at this point, but not Jesus. Mark says he sees the people and has compassion on them. And this is an important line because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. You may have seen in your homework this week that this is a parallel to Ezekiel 34, a prophecy condemning Israel's corrupt priests who are not caring for the people of God, who are ended up wandering like helpless sheep. But in context of Herod's story in chapter 6, we're also reminded that these people don't have a good king either. But let's keep Ezekiel 34 in mind for a minute, because I think we also need to see Mark 6 in context of what comes after it. 
another confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes in chapter 7. The religious leaders in Israel accuse Jesus of leaving behind the ritual purity that has always set Israel apart from the Gentile nations. And Jesus says to them, there is something more important than your traditions of ritual purity. You need moral purity. You need a purity of heart. And you don't have it. In fact, you are using God's law to feed your own selfishness. In this tradition of Corbin that is mentioned in chapter 7, the Jewish people could pledge their money to the temple, but then in keeping that law, they could consider themselves off the hook for caring financially for their aging parents. So the new tradition actually caused them to break God's law of honoring their father and mother. Like Herod and the people in Jesus' hometown, they end up paying lip service to Jesus, in this case, God and his law. But their hearts are far from him. Again, they don't have eyes to see the spiritual truth behind the physical reality. It's not their dirty hands that are the biggest problem. It is their hearts full of evil and foolishness, Jesus says. Their unclean hearts have rendered them completely defiled. This is the problem for them, and it's the problem for us too. We have those same hearts, prone to caring more about the external appearance of holiness than the inner purity of heart. And it's not just the big stuff like murder or theft, sexual immorality, but it's greed too. Jesus says it's self-indulgence. What does that look like for us, huh? little Netflix binge, some mindless Instagram scrolling. What about envy and pride? Do you struggle there? Yeah, that's a, pro- that's a problem for us, isn't it? We are all like sheep, gone astray, turned to our own way as the prophet Isaiah puts it. We need a shepherd. We need someone to deal with our biggest problem, our sinful, straying hearts. So flip back to chapter 6, verse 34. What's the first thing Jesus in his compassion does for these sheep in need of a shepherd? He begins to teach them. It's interesting because we think the story is all about food, but perhaps this is another really important detail. Jesus sees their need And he teaches them. Verse 35 says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Okay, by all this repetition, we get that the people need something to eat. And I guess that the disciples probably still need to eat too, don't they? In fact, even now as I'm teaching this, I'm seeing that the people need to be taught by Jesus. It's the disciples that started out hungry. But there's no time for that, is there? Because Jesus has a mission for them. He says, you give them something to eat. Jesus has brought them out to this remote, desert, wilderness place. They are here because he told them to come. 
And like it always has been through the whole book of Mark, the desert or wilderness or desolate place is the place of testing of prayer and repentance. So Jesus has a test for them, a mission. And it makes sense now why earlier Jesus told the 12 to take only a staff with them. This symbol of a shepherd's care over a flock. That is the mission he has always been calling them to. To feed and care for his sheep. The imagery is all here. We've already been pointed back to the prophecy of Ezekiel. But the original reader would also hear the voice of Moses here in Numbers 27, 17. When Moses prays before his death that God would provide another leader so that the people won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And we also see a parallel to the way Moses cared for the people of God in Exodus 18. And he organized them into groups of 50s and 100 so that their needs could be heard and cared for by judges. Jesus settles this flock down into similar groups here. Mark says, on the green grass. And he feeds them because the disciples can't. He gives them the mission and they don't see beyond the physical limitations. They couldn't possibly afford to feed this crowd. They don't have the resources. Yet they are with Jesus. One they've already seen has authority over wind and waves and death and sickness, sin. And again, their first reaction is not the posture of faith. If it was, I think they would have leaned in and said, you want us to feed them? Okay, Jesus. We're in. Show us what to do. But they don't. And Jesus has compassion on them too, doesn't he? Without any scolding or shaking his head, he just sends them out to bring what they can find. And he makes something from nothing. Feeds 5,000 men plus a bunch more women and children with just five loaves and two fish. Everyone ate and was satisfied. And more. There are 12 baskets left over. The number of the tribes of all Israel, reminding the original reader of another time in Israel's history that there was no food and God himself provided his people with bread. Manna from heaven. Enough for each day. 12 also happens to be the number of hungry disciples here. Enough for all. More than enough. This miracle of food multiplication is amazing. But did you notice that there's no mention of the people's reaction here in Mark? Every other time, people see Jesus' miracles and they're astonished or they're in awe or they fear. But not here. Scholars think it's because the people never even knew what had happened. The only people that did were the disciples. So this miracle was not actually for the people's benefit, although it did benefit their hungry stomachs. It was for the benefit of the disciples. There was something Jesus wanted them to learn here. It was a parable. And sadly, if we skip ahead in the story, Mark tells us that they didn't get it. The line in chapter 6, verse 52, that says the disciples had not understood about the loaves, hints that the story it is found in, this second small scene of a boat on stormy seas, is not just meaningless repetition of something that had already happened, but part of this parable of the loaves. 
Remember last time the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and afraid? Their response was not one of faith, but of fear. They said, don't you care we're perishing? Here we have just seen Jesus care for the sheep without a shepherd. He cares enough to supply their basic need of bread and food. The disciples have witnessed this compassion. Now he tells them to go into the boat and go to the other side. They're in this boat because he made them get in. He goes off to pray and they get caught up in another windstorm. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking by now that the disciples should maybe just take the long way around by foot and stop getting in the boat. But again, there is something for them to learn here. They don't have to wake up Jesus this time. He sees them straining at the oars and he comes towards them, walking on the sea. And Mark adds this weird detail that Jesus wanted to pass by them. Now, if you're reading this passage independently of the rest of the chapter, your first thought on reading that phrase was probably, wait, what? Jesus, don't you care that they're going to perish? You're just going to surf right on by? But the OR who is thus far caught up in all this Old Testament imagery that Mark has carefully opened their mind to read something completely different. They already have Moses in their head. They've been reminded of the state of God's people as sheep without a shepherd. And now they've seen Jesus feed these people bread in the same way God fed his people manna in the desert, miraculously. They are beginning to see more of this picture Mark is painting. This Jesus who has authority and compassion and power over evil, sickness and death, nature and all creation. This Jesus is none other than the Lord God of Israel's history. And it's this phrase that he wanted to pass by them that should make it abundantly clear in their minds. It's a phrase from a very important story in the Old Testament where Moses, doubting his ability to carry out this mission God has given him to lead his people, he asked God to make himself known to him to teach him his ways and to let Moses see exactly who he is, the fullness of his glory. Listen to God's answer in Exodus 33, 19. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have The OR, who was probably reading the Septuagint, or the Old Testament, which has been translated into Greek, reads that Jesus intended to pass by the disciples, and it's exactly the same phrase as here in Exodus. And it's in other places too. In 1 Kings, you might know the story where the prophet of God named Elijah escapes from Jezebel, who wants to kill him, and he runs to Horeb, which is the mountain of the Lord, where Moses heard God's voice in the burning bush. The Lord does speak to him there. You probably remember there was a wind, an earthquake, a fire, and then a soft whisper. 1 Kings 19.11 says, At that moment, the Lord passed by. Last week in an email, I sent you some verses from the book of Job, chapter 9, verses 8 to 9, where he's talking about God as all-wise and all-powerful. It says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. 
If he passes by me, I wouldn't see him. Verse 11, if he goes right by, I wouldn't recognize him. Listen, Mark is saying that God intended to reveal himself to his disciples as he passed by the boat, but the disciples didn't recognize him. They are blinded by fear and they think he's a ghost. If you're not yet convinced of Mark's point, keep reading in verse 50. It says, immediately Jesus spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. That little phrase, it is I, is very well known in the Bible. It is called the ego a me, and it's most often translated I am. And yep, if you're tracking with me, those are the exact same words used when God gives his name to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh, I am. Jesus is showing the disciples the full extent of who he is, or at least he wants to. The shepherd that has come to take care of the lost sheep of Israel, the one who sustained his people in the desert with divine abundance, he who passed by in the wind and gave his prophets just a glimpse of his magnificent glory, the I am self-existent creator God. He has come to be with his people and turn their hearts back to him in repentance. And sadly, the disciples don't see it. Like Pharaoh, in spite of wonders and miraculous signs, their hearts are hardened. They are unable to see and hear with eyes and ears of faith. And therefore, they end up following in the path of others in the story. Those in Jesus' hometown, King Herod, the Pharisees and the scribes, Here now are the king's own disciples rejecting him, honoring him with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from him. It's almost too much. At this point, the reader might be tempted to wonder how anyone can find the kingdom of God if even the king's own disciples reject him. If these people are in the boat with Jesus, seeing him heal and free and feed, and they still have no spiritual sight that can grow faith, what hope is there for me? And furthermore, if Jesus' kingdom is truly the key to human flourishing, why do so many of our friends and family reject it? And the most unsettling question, perhaps, If to follow Jesus means to walk his same path that includes rejection, pain, and suffering, why would anyone willingly sign up for this kingdom? Perhaps the answers come in the last story of our passages this week. A strange and rather unsettling story of a woman who Mark says was Syrophoenician by birth. Whatever that means, right? (laughs) I say it's unsettling because as a modern reader, it's a hard story to read without thinking Jesus somehow insults this woman. Many teachers have read this to be evidence of Jesus's human nature, that even he is not innocent of his culture's racism, and that it causes him to speak unjustly towards this woman. Others have taught that Jesus is rebuked by her and that she changes his mission and his mind in this moment. 
and some have tried to put a modern understanding of dogs as house pets onto Jesus' words in an attempt to soften their harshness. While I totally understand the impulse to make sense of this strange story, I think these interpretations lack the bigger picture of Mark's message in the surrounding passages of Jesus as this rejected king, God himself, but taking his mission forward nonetheless. So let's take it slow and in context of everything we have already read. First, Jesus goes to this region of Tyre and Sidon. You can see on your map that it's primarily Gentile and Mark says Jesus didn't want anyone to know about it. This could be more of the secrecy theme of the book, especially with Mark's statement that he could not be hidden. But it could also be that Jesus was going to this outlying region to rest and escape the crowds. A woman hears he's there and she comes to him and she assumes a very familiar posture, one we've already seen many times as Jewish people have responded to Jesus. She falls at his feet and begs. Now, this is the first time Mark has introduced a Gentile character responding to Jesus, so we should pay attention. She has a daughter suffering with an unclean spirit, and she asks Jesus to cast out the demon. We've seen him do this before, but not among Gentiles. And in the instances before, Jesus interacted directly with the demon. This time, the woman is asking on behalf of her daughter. And here's where it gets difficult. Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, at first glance, it might sound like Jesus is, one, calling her a dog, and two, saying that he won't heal her daughter. But how does that line up with the compassion we have seen thus far from Jesus? It might help you to understand that this is a parable. Jesus is using the image to teach something important about his mission and why he came. We know from the New Testament writers that Jesus came first to the Jews. His mission was to the children, the children of Israel. Only after his death and resurrection does this mission expand to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. And to be clear, the kingdom was always eventually to go to all nations. We know this right from the promise to Abraham in Genesis, that Israel held a special role in the story of God, but that through him and them, all people were to receive the blessing of God. But that's not how the Jewish people saw it. They considered the Gentiles as inferior. Calling them dogs was a common insult at the time. So here Jesus is using irony and sarcasm to call out the misunderstanding the Jews had of his mission, not to mention their own mission to be a light among the other nations. He's calling attention to their own flawed understanding of his plan. But the truly amazing part of this story is that this woman, this Gentile woman, actually seems to understand the parable. She's not offended. Her heart is not hardened by these comments. Instead, it says she answers him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It's unbelievable. But she has insight into the mission of God 
to all nations in a way no one else does. She understands that there is a created order to his mission of redemption. Yes, Lord. And yet, she says, yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She sees what the disciples don't recognize. That even the crumbs falling from the twelve baskets of leftovers are more than enough to satisfy. His grace and salvation and healing is enough for all because he is creator God, the Messiah King. She recognizes him. This woman has incredible faith. And I'm not sure how, except that faith is entirely a gift of God and not limited by gender, culture, or status. Jesus recognizes her faith and tells her to go and find her daughter healed. In fact, the sense of the original language here seems to say that the demon had already left her daughter when she first approaches Jesus. He recognized her faith from the beginning. And in their brief and strange exchange, we are left with this enacted parable showing that Jesus, who has come to bring the kingdom, who is God himself, is making a way for all people, all nations, to be brought into his kingdom and experience its abundance. After nearly two full chapters showing Jesus as the rejected king, I think it's important to see that this section ends with radical acceptance of him by the most unlikely of characters. Yes, some will reject, even his own disciples at times, but some do find faith. And the ones that do have something in common, don't they? The humblest of postures. They fall at his feet and they ask, they ask. Remember what Mark is showing us about what it means to follow Jesus. There's this sense that you linger, lean in, that you ask questions, that you be with him. The contrast between the pride of Herod and the humility of this Gentile woman shows us that the reason people will reject Jesus is the selfishness of sin. Repentance is too great a cost for those who are battling to protect their little kingdoms of one. Pride will always prevent faith from growing in those situations. It will choke it out like weeds. But everyone who sees Jesus as the source of life will seek him out in faith. And everyone who seeks him out will eat and be satisfied. Everyone. Here lies the reason anyone would sign up to follow the rejected king if it just means his servants will be rejected too. Mark wanted the original reader to understand that while pain and suffering is part of life, contrary to the Western capitalist gospel, it is not our biggest problem. Hearts that prevent us from being satisfied fully by Jesus are our biggest problem. 
Unlike the banquet of Herod in the kingdom of man marked by pride and wickedness and ultimately death, Jesus as king lays out a feast in green pastures for everyone who comes to him. It is the mystery of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit living in the children of God that in the face of pain, suffering, uncertainty, just plain difficulty, that still everyone can eat and be satisfied. The kingdom of God is marked by abundance. Don't forget it. The inner spirit of a Jesus follower can actually know peace, love, and joy of the king, regardless of what is happening in the physical world. Its scarcity has no bearing on the abundance of the kingdom of God. So can you see it? Can you see the kingdom? Or does your hard heart or spiritual blindness prevent you from seeing who Jesus truly is? You know, the disciples... Here are a few questions we can respond to in order to begin to apply these truths to our life. First, are you guilty of honoring God with your lips? of keeping your hands clean in some areas, but deep inside know that your heart is far from him? Do you actually have a deep love for God? Two, if you are his follower, if you are one here that considers yourself a disciple, what does it mean for you to feed his sheep? Who are those he has entrusted to you? Kids, maybe, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, younger or other women that you work with or who are in your community group. How are you pointing the flock towards a posture of faith? And three, perhaps God intends to pass by and reveal himself to you through this study. Are you giving yourself to it? Or does fear or maybe even familiarity prevent you from seeing? Perhaps you're rejecting his authority in an area of your life because it threatens your comfort or control. What is it he wants you to see? As always, let's ask Jesus to give us the gift of faith, that it might revive our spirits, open our eyes to see in new and true ways, and flood the day-to-day of our physical world with supernatural abundance of peace and love and hope and joy. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, we are witnesses of your abundance. Your power to provide is unmatched. We praise you as the good shepherd. We see it here in Mark. 
You go as far as laying down your life for your sheep. Lord, we need to confess that we are often among those who reject you. We battle unbelief because our hearts by default are hardened by sin. Please, would you soften them by your beautiful spirit? Would you make us people of faith? Give us eyes to see and recognize you in all your glory and goodness. Lord, we thank you for your love and your compassion and your willingness to teach us when we are lost. You are so good. Open our eyes to what you are calling us to do as we follow. We love you, Jesus. Amen.